Hi everybody, we have a special edition of Home Matters, and it's, it's special to, to us because we have our first repeat guest. So not only have we kept this boat going, but uh, we have a return visitor. Shauna Lunasen is with us this morning. Thanks for being here, Shauna. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And we discussed this when you got here. Ron asked if you brought donuts. So I have a very important question for you. We, we don't have donuts, but um, breakfast. Yeah. Always, sometimes, or never. You're a very busy person. I have a husband who has an opinion that I don't eat frequently enough. So sometimes, but but it, I aim for always. And then sometimes I'm busy and then I don't. And, right. then, and then he gets on my case and says, well, you haven't eaten yet for four hours. That's why you're tired. <laughs> oh, okay. Go for it. So, and that's how his voice sounds too, obviously. Okay. Yeah. I'm um, sometimes leading to never camp, and it's a very important. Really, for yeah, breakfast, right? Oh on my purpose, goodness. never. I yeah. I'm always. I'm an always too. Always. I, without a coffee, shower, and breakfast, I couldn't navigate the first hour of the day. It's an right? important meal. It is. Now, if you but, think about yeah. a machine and how you. <laughs> never mind. I need to do better. I do. I need to do better. But yeah. there are people in new a new camp that believe you should only eat like two large meals a day, and you you shouldn't you should not eat for like twelve hour spans. You can what do you can this? look it up. Oh intermittent is that intermittent, intermittent fasting? fasting? Yeah, but I think isn't breakfast oh. one of those, and then like another large meal, and so we're really skipping dinner, not. Mm breakfast she might be an expert i i know very little about this think how much time in our day we'd gain if we didn't eat of course you say you don't eat much but it's like (laughs) i should eat more (laughs) you know that you're a very busy person when you start to consider not eating yes (laughs) i could save so much time (laughs) just be great the real problem is that i'm a a hangry person (laughs) so until until somebody points out like oh maybe you're crabby meaning my husband Uh because you didn't eat then oh Oh, yeah, I should yeah. eat food. That's a good idea. Interesting. Thanks. My very first job was in the uh, food industry in a, in a restaurant, and uh, the boss always said, you cannot, you can't have a good conversation with an empty stomach. You oh, just, yeah. You, you have to, you know, yeah. feed people, and then everything gets better. Yeah. We're really going off, uh, off the good. rails We're here. We're off in the weeds. So, here, yeah. uh, <laughs> and then follow up, Ron and I were just talking this morning about how we measure our coffee. Are you a coffee drinker? Mm. I'm reserving that for when I have children, so I try to <laughs> never drink coffee. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> but every once in a while, I okay. do, um, but not that often. Uh, awesome. Well, let's get us back on the tracks. We uh, are a real estate podcast, kind of, sort of. So we let's are. talk a little bit about that. What's happening in the market these days? You know, it's cold out there. It is, it is cold. <laughs> so I thought it was time we give our furnace some love. Yeah, good point. Uh-huh. You know, because our furnace mm-hmm. is something that we take for granted. It's this gray box that sits in our basements or wherever, and we never think about it except when it doesn't work. And how appropriate that Sean is here on this yes. topic as well. Yes, and so you know, it's just it's it's a good it's a good reminder to uh, the design life on a furnace. And we talked about this when you bought your house. Is typically twenty to thirty years, but don't ignore it because when it's gonna it's gonna go out when it's the coldest mm-hmm. and the darkest out. So this time of year, it's a good idea to remember to change your filter if you're not already doing that. And then just as a reminder, if you've got a one inch filter, change it every thirty days. If you've got a two inch filter, change it uh, every two months, three months. If you got a six inch filter, those big max guys, mm-hmm. twice a year. Um, it's a good idea to have it serviced. Every other year, if you haven't, regardless yep. of how old it is. Right. 
Make sure everything's working. So there are two schools of thoughts on this, though, because um, some people go, well, my furnace is working. I'm going to let it go till it dies, especially mm-hmm. if you have one of those old, what are they, Williams? Williams, yeah, Williamson's. Williamson's, I yes. mean, they... They go forever and ever and ever. They do, yeah. They've got the Energizer, energizer Bunny beat yeah. all over the place. But how crabby are you when it's january and 40 below and your furnace goes out right so that's the other piece right. of it because it is the the shift in weather that stresses both your furnace and your ac yeah and a furnace service is going to be around a hundred dollars you know and it doesn't matter how old it is every other year have somebody come in and adjust it look at it dust it off and peek inside that gray box to make sure that everything looks okay. You know, there's no guarantees that it's not gonna go out irregardless, but it's just a, a good precaution to have somebody come and take a look at it. So if you haven't scheduled it this year uh, and you did do it last year, I would, did you? I have not. Okay. Uh, well, I did by default. I didn't get the usual servicing, but I had an issue with my air conditioner. So they okay. came in and they took care of all the things. And that's where you also, I was very humbled because I tell people, change your, your air filter. Check on that. And he pulled it out. He said, you really need to change your air filter. (laughs) And I've got six clean ones ready to go two feet away. And I thought, well, I forgot about it, you know, over the course of the summer. And when it's it's warm, I don't think about the air filter, but it's always... Yeah. You're using it then, too. And you have dogs, right? Yeah. yeah. Three. <laughs> Three, yeah. Well, we got a new furnace last year, right after we moved into our house. Yeah. But but credit to us getting it serviced. So we bought our house with no inspection, which was just a choice that we made. Um, and then the guy came in and looked at it and said, oh, you need a new furnace. And so we bought one, which was great because I didn't need it to break in right. my new house when it was mm-hmm. negative whatever it was 150 degrees or something yeah, yeah. at least yeah yeah <laughs> molecular <laughs> motion stopped right it was so cold oh yeah. yeah we were very warm though through the winter so nice. good. and then just real quick i don't want to dive into a lot of numbers because i'm anxious to get into the conversation today but uh, a couple things that come to mind is that you know the market is a little bit slower right now in general which is typical of this time of year but in looking at our numbers, our inventory is still the same. But uh, I was in a meeting this early, uh, earlier this week in the morning, and obviously when we show up as realtors, everybody has to talk about or would like to talk about affordable housing. And so when you're looking at the number of houses that are for sale in Rochester right now, which was 314, so our numbers are about the same. But there's 60% of our inventory is over 300 and our median price range is a 200 and under. There's only 14% of our inventory that's, that's under there. So we still do have uh, what I'm gonna call an inventory shortage. I was meeting with a contractor this morning and he says, seems like there's houses everywhere for sale for 160. And I said, you know, it's really not true. Mm-hmm. It is maybe the perception, but uh, Lynn and I were, was visiting with some people yesterday that are wanting to spend under 200 and your choices are still severely limited especially if you've got some preferences on uh, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, garage, location, those kind of things. So 14% of our total inventory is still under 200000 which is still pretty short. Yeah, and that's where that range, in that range, things move quickly. Yes, still. they do, typically. Yeah. yeah, and above that range, the days on markets tend to extend a little bit. Yeah, and our market overall is, is, is extending just a touch by a few days, but once you get over the 300 mark, our days on market do, like you say, extend. But... Uh, but uh, just if you're perceiving it being slow, it might be a, a little bit in the upper ranges, but we still have a, a shortage on, on our prime um, price points. All right. So what can we do about that? 
coach people. Coach people. Be talking. If you've got any questions, call us. Yeah. Whether you're looking to buy or sell. Yeah. And then the spring market gets started pretty early usually. It does. Mm -hmm. Our spring market can actually start in January. We've seen years where into January, 1st of February, things heat up. Yeah. Start Mm -hmm. moving. Yeah. We bought our house almost a year ago. Exactly. This is when we were Has it been a year? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It was October 25th that oh. you wrote the contract. Was it? Yeah. It was Good my dad's remember? birthday. Oh. So that's when I was, we were celebrating his 70th birthday. Yeah, you were <laughs> it was not here. Typing away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sacrificing his birthday. Yeah, no, it was great. <laughs> we got to meet Ron, so that was super fun. No, it was cool. Yeah, we love our house. We mention it probably every three days. We talk about how much we love <laughs> our great. house. So I was going to ask how everything is going. It's yeah. wonderful. It's great. We don't have to spend money on it, and we're cozy and warm and happy. So and right next to the park. Right next to the park. Oh, yeah, right there. We definitely make great use of the bike trails all yeah. summer. So nice. And we, I can tell people to come visit us on their bike by giving them directions yeah. from the bike nice. trail, which is that's cool. Take that yeah. bridge instead of this bridge. Has Ray done anything with the space in the garage? You had the coolest, you have the coolest garage, and it's got basically a fort above where you park. So you've got that in a, like a big barn door that swings open, too. Yeah, it's very uh, cool. Uh, no, he hasn't yet. He, he did some, he changed some of the, I don't know, he's got projects. But he, he, <laughs> he started inside the house with his projects. Nice. Um, and I don't let him spend very much money because he got to buy a furnace. And then also a microwave. So I he just, got to buy a furnace and a microwave. Yeah, yeah. he okay. did. So yeah, I right. so I said, I said, what a gift for you. So you, <laughs> you don't get to go play and all these other things. But uh, we're I think a garage door opener is on the Christmas list for my parents. And then we're gonna move nice. into sheetrocking the garage after that. And then it's on it's on the list at cool. least. So right now we are just we have not nearly enough things to fit in all of our storage so we don't get to make good use of our cool storage spaces and that's okay right you don't want to be piling up stuff over the years that's right well shauna thanks for being here today again uh tell us a little bit about yourself yes so applicable information is that i'm a childhood cancer survivor i had cancer when i was seven years old i am 29 now which just means my back hurts when I wake up in the morning, <laughs> when it didn't before. I am from Plainview originally and went to Winona State for uh, business education, moved to Rochester in 2012 and have lived here since. Met my husband when he came for physical therapy school. He is now a physical therapist um, working in Austin, actually, in the Mayo Clinic Health System. And I'm a, a professional speaker on the side and a founder of a nonprofit. And there is also another podcast that when you, you first came and you kind of told your story, so if someone's listening and they're intrigued by what's, what they hear today, yeah. that would be a great place for them to go to hear your whole story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. It is a we good had, one. We had a good time then, too. <laughs> it is a yeah, good one. Right? That's why we brought you back. Thanks, guys. <laughs> but, you, but you haven't, you didn't have the nonprofit at that time. So yes. um, what inspired you to do that? Yeah. So I'm halfway through my MBA at the University of Minnesota here in town. That's my day job. I oversee the MBA. And I think three, four months into that, I started talking with some of my classmates and they said, hmm, some really cool experience and some vision for how you would uh, like to see childhood cancer 
experiences change kind of nationally and internationally. And then they really just were encouraging enough to say, you should go do that. So in May, I founded what is called Childhood Cancer Community. And it, from its founding, focuses on building relationship for every part of a family that is affected by childhood cancer. And that's not just when you're diagnosed, but also long into survivorship. There are a lot of obviously emotional effects of the impact of having such a traumatic experience at a young age. Siblings need a place to sort of make sense of that. And then survivors, as they get older, also need mentorship opportunities. And so the idea is to build a system that works for everybody to have a place there in that system. Wow. Yeah. Now, I've been following you a little bit on Facebook, um, and the stories are just, some of them are kind of heartbreaking. They are hard, yeah. Yeah, they're really hard stories. So, right. Um, how does somebody, I mean, when you, when you first started this, how did you get the core group, the connections, the people to... To begin mm-hmm. with the nonprofit, so I have been mentoring kids even nationwide for twenty years, just individually. Uh, so I have a lot of connections to different medical institutions nationwide because of that. When I'll be on a trip or something, I'll go visit a new child in one place or in another place, and I've remained very involved at local clinics and hospitals, so that uh, I, I, you know, just there one-on-one providing that sort of relationship for these children. And just in that long-standing time, I've been able to meet people, you know, who I haven't even seen for for a decade or so who have been able to come back and be reinvolved now with this organization and fa- kind of find a place as they've healed through their own journey. So there's some of that. There's also the new families that, you know, will just get through referral systems. We work with uh, the Ronald McDonald House. We work with the hospitals themselves and the social work and child life nurses um, that they spread our information around. And um, once we have, you know, those families involved, we, we kind of take them through a process and then connect them with other families. So you mentioned Ronald McDonald House. How are you different mm-hmm. from what they do at Ronald McDonald House? So Ronald McDonald House is one of our favorite places. They're so wonderful. I've known um, a lot of the leaders there for many, many years and watched them grow and change, and it's been so fun. And what they do really well is provide a home base for these families. And it can be anybody going through any sort of trauma or difficult situation with a child. And they provide the housing, the the meals, the opportunity to not lose a lot of money in hotel stays and feeling like you're somewhere that you're well taken care of. What we do is a little bit different and a little less intangible. And we bring people together for the purpose of building meaningful relationships. So we want them to really um, get an opportunity to share their experience with other people, to connect with others who understand them in a way that builds a lifelong friendship, and that those people become your community that moves around with you wherever it is that you go. And we do that through fun events. We do that through meaningful things. Like we'll have a speaker um, this weekend on PTSD and how that will affect families. And it gives them an opportunity to just be normal in the midst of something that's so abnormal. And these people really do um, connect in a, in a way that is, it will be with them forever. 
So if a, a family is referred to you, um, I mean, obviously they're in the middle of trauma and chaos. Uh, what's what's the first thing you do? I mean, how do you how do you initiate that process? Yeah. So uh, generally, they will reach out to us and just out of privacy laws for medical institutions, or we'll connect with them through a community. Um, families are good at referring families. So if they find somebody in a Facebook group, or they find somebody, um, at, you know, who's a friend of a friend, then they'll put us in touch. First point is we usually talk to them um, independently. So we have a kind of a core group of people who have really grown their mentorship skills, talk to them to start with and and just be their friend, ask them what they need. Depending on where they are in their journey, they'll need different things. If they're right at the beginning, they need a whole host of resources that they've never had before. And just being their friend and letting them talk about what they're going through and telling them what to expect in the next stage and then inviting them into our online community where they can start reading the stories of the other families that they will meet. And then we have events every month. So it's not usually very long before they're able to come and meet people in person to be a part of it. And can they do that while they're still getting treatment? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's uh, probably the majority of the individuals that is the case. And the fun of that is that parents get some time to kind of just be on their own. And then kids and the siblings also get time to go just do normal kid things in a place that's safe. And people understand medical complexity. The volunteers are vetted. Most of them have some sort of medical background. So it's a safe environment. But the kids don't know that. They just think it's a fun place that they go to be with their friends. So how old were you? When you were diagnosed? I was seven years old. So you remember it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of it. Tell me about tell me about that. Yeah. How did that I mean as a seven year old, how do you how do you think about that? Because, you know, when we see people, uh, families with kids with cancer, it's like as a as a child, how do you relate mm-hmm. to that kind of information coming your way? Children understand far more than we give them credit for. I really realistically understood most of everything that was being talked about. And these children, while they are resilient, are also forced to grow up very quickly. And that generally becomes an issue when they enter their teenage years. And that was kind of the situation with me as well, because I understood the complexities and the difficulties of this this big circumstance I went through. When I got to high school and things were petty and people mm-hmm. were fighting about whatever, <laughs> it, it really just ends up an isolating experience because nobody in high school is going to tell you, oh, that's really great that you have all right. of this wisdom and experience right. and then you yeah. know what's important. They don't, they don't care about that. And I definitely, I definitely still took my emotions from my parents. I think emotionally kids look for the indicators that come from their parents or from the people that are surrounding them. But medically, I definitely understood everything that was going on to the degree that a seven-year-old can. But also the benefit of being seven is that I wasn't thinking about the long-term things that parents think of. Will you get married? Will you graduate high school? I just wanted to be healthy enough to go to school the next week. So in many ways, it's beneficial to be a child in that way. Uh, and it's it's important that we just give them normalcy because so much of so much of it's abnormal, but parents need the emotional confidence to maintain stability for their yeah. kids. 
What community did you have when you, what community was around you when you found out and your family was there? That is a great question because that is my inspiration for this. We had nobody long-term to look to. So no, nobody who had survived for any amount of time. I just happened to be in the hospital with eight other families who consistently overlapped while I was in the hospital. And those became my closest confidants for so much of my life. And those were relationships that were never like any other, any other relationship that I experienced. I mean, probably until I met my husband, because they could just inherently understand something about me that nobody else could. And we spent quality time in just the worst circumstances, but having so much fun. But also, uh, there are eight, eight families, and there are only two with children that are still alive today. So had to go through that journey and see what sort of an impact they made on me in a, in a like residual way that I could experience forever. And they, they still are very much with me just in the way they developed me as a person. They were there for all of the things that grew me the most. And I, I just think it's invaluable. And that I think is why it's my, it's my everything um, because it was that meaningful to me. And I know that it is that meaningful to these families. And are those two, does that include you or are those yes, two other Yes, including groups? me, yep. So you have one other friend mm-hmm. from that group. Yep. Do you still see them? She lives in Michigan, so I don't see her a lot, but our moms chat all the time. They, <laughs> they still, they both, they're so funny. They're so chatty and they love it. Um, and I'm still really good friends with their parents. You know, the, uh, there's a whole section of my wedding of, of parents of kids with cancer that were like three tables full of people. Mm-hmm. And they're... Because they it, they really are like my family, there. Yeah. So, because your parents have, uh, I don't know them, but I've met them. You know, are, are certainly supportive. Mm-hmm. How now being adult, an adult? How do you see that that event changed their lives? How did that? What impact did that have on them? Because that's as as a parent, that's what we think about. Yeah. You know what what would happen if this was me and our children, or grandchildren? But how do you perceive that now as adult that it did change your parents through that whole thing? I am very fortunate that they have always been very supportive in in letting me make sense out of my experience. Um, But I also think that's always been very helpful for them. There are some studies that are out that say that the people who are greatest in emotional impact in a childhood cancer journey are the mother and the siblings. And I would say that's definitely true. My dad really... Um, has always maintained the protector in the family. It it changed everyone for the better. I will say that he is he is sweet and lovely and understands the value of his family and takes very good care of us at all times. And I think driven by the cancer experience, my mom was with me most of the time in the hospital. So we had many phases of life that we worked through um, of you know her needing to protect me and used to me being there. She had, a, she had an especially, especially difficult time when I went to college just because she had to learn to sort of let go at these different stages. And I, I do think the farther you get away, the farther you, th- you know, it is from thinking that you, your child will have cancer. But I know that my parents are much more readily forever uh, to move to like, hmm, is that medical thing that you have something bad or uh mm-hmm. or is it just fine they they won't say it but they think it and i'm the opposite where i'm like eh, it's probably fine we'll deal with it if we mm-hmm. if we have to deal with it so it grew them immensely but also 
it was very evident that there were big there were big pieces of hurt that had to heal as time went on as well. So organically, you formed what your your organization is right now. You were yeah. you were there. You were through it. You had the community that you kind of built and mm-hmm. saw the the void. Yeah, absolutely. And the long term dream here is that every family who doesn't have a child with cancer yet already knows about childhood cancer community so that should that happen anywhere in the United States at any time, they know that the first place that they should go is to pick up the phone to call somebody and know that they they have a place. And there are 42 kids diagnosed every day with cancer in America. So it's, it's not rare. And there is this huge population of individuals who then have to take a complete about face and and it's hard enough to be parents of kids when they're not sick, yeah. let alone when you have now somebody who is sick. And I just hope that as we continue to build this structure, we can uh, we can provide people the tools to, to make sense of their experiences at their individual medical institutions. I'd like to see it at every major medical institution, you know, maybe, who knows, maybe stationed out of a Ronald McDonald house or, or some type of place where they, they can physically go and be a part of something. I'm glad you brought up the perspective, too, because I don't think we, well, personally, you you think about the individual who gets the diagnosis, but the family members, too, I mean, they are hit very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, siblings probably have a, a hard time understanding what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where is the the support system or what what is the importance of the support system for the parents, the siblings, and, and how do you help them? Yeah. Everybody has a different experience in the midst of the same experience. So oftentimes we'll tell people right when in that first phone call, they're, they're looking for ways that their community can help their family and their friends around them. And we always say it's awesome that they want to bring gifts for your child, but they should also be bringing gifts for the sibling because for the child, for the sibling to sit there and watch this child get all of these gifts, regardless of if they're sick or not, they don't understand that. They just feel isolated from their family. They're the one that's still doing normal life. No one's asking about them. Nobody's excited about the things happening in their life just because by nature of triage, you pay attention to the sick kid. Parents then feel the guilt of not paying attention to the sibling. And so what is also beneficial about something like childhood cancer community is that you build relationships with people who you can trust to take your siblings and uh, who can spend time with them in a way that they can talk about cancer and it can be a normal part of their life because it it needs to be a normal part of their life. Uh, Parents need multiple things. They need friends. Some people just need activities and outlets. Some need resources, some some like financial resources. They're driven by, you know, just needing to pay bills. So it's very different for each one. But every month we have a community night and the parents get an hour and a half to spend just with each other while we take their kids and their kids go have a fun time. Mm-hmm. And that's... That's what they I mean. Realistically, they can they can sort a lot of things out if they're in a room full of people where they can just state how things are actually going. That's big. That's a yeah. big help. So, are you? Do you work with volunteers? And what what does the perfect volunteer look like for yeah. your organization? Well, I will I will make this pitch. We need volunteers all the time, always. Um, we have around thirty volunteers that work 
with us now. And there are different roles that are listed on our website that people can be involved in different capacities. What's your website? My website is childhoodcancercommunity.org. So pretty straightforward. You can click the volunteer button and you'll see the section about all the different types of volunteering. We meet at Mount Olive Lutheran Church here in Rochester, which is this awesome facility. They do a great job taking care of us, but we have a ton of space and average right around 60 to 65 kids under the age of 18 that come to our community nights. Really? So it's a busy time and we organize, um, we organize six activities for the night and the kids move through these activities. Some are super meaningful. Some are just really fun. Some are um, really messy things they would never get to do with their own house. And volunteers are essential for every part of that. But then we also have a lot of kids with special needs. So we'll, we will use a lot of individuals in one-on-one situations with those kids who maybe can't participate in a normal group activity just as usual. So the ideal volunteer is somebody committed. I think people often think of volunteer work as just like something to do as kind of an afterthought. I'm of the camp that volunteer work should be a part of your life in everything that you do because you you need to be in a place um, as a human where you learn to give of yourself in all circumstances. So we want you to enjoy your experience, but we also require that people be committed to it. Um, we have a set number of events they must attend because we want continuity for the families who come and we take it very seriously. If you're going to be a part of their life, we want you to be a positive impact in their life. We don't want you to just be somebody who, who comes on in. So that's the first thing that they can commit. Second, just that you're compassionate and you care and you're a good team player, you know, um, you're willing to help with silly random things that might come up because it's a little it's a little like herding cats no matter what we sure. do. Um, we're pretty organized, but uh, we do our best. And, uh, and, and just, yeah, somebody who just wants to, you know, care for these people. You don't have to have a connection to cancer. If, if you've never experienced childhood cancer, no problem. If you have, and you're looking for a way to make meaning out of it, we would love to have you. What about younger people that maybe don't have cancer, but, but a parent would want to bring them so Mm -hmm. that they're exposed to, you know, what kids are going through. Is that something that you can work with or is that kind of touchy? Uh, we can. So so the way that that sort of needs to work is that um, we have to run background checks on everybody. So by inherent age requirements, you need to be 16 or older to have a background check run. So that just means that the child can come, but then they have to be in a room with somebody with a background check. So we kind of call them like an apprentice. Um, it really is best if they're if they're 13 or older. Anybody younger than that will have a great experience, but probably won't be especially helpful. And we like right. to keep our services really focused on if we're going to give a fun time, we wanted to give it to those families. We want it to be you know, right. that sort of safe space for them. But we do have teenagers who come with their parents, and that is a cool bonding experience for them to get to work together and, and be meeting these families together. And also these um, volunteers are welcome to become friends with our families. It, it's not, there are no rules that once an event is done, they can't talk to them again. They're a part of our group. Um, they're in our online community, so they watch the updates of the families come through, and they have a special spot where if they have something they can give or they build a connection, they can go do that. And we welcome them to do that because they're a part of it. We rely on them heavily. So, Is there a cost to the families? No. Everything is 100% free to the families. And they are 
uh, worth that and so much more. If I could just give them all the money, I would, I would also do that. But absolutely not. They don't pay for anything at any time. So we rely heavily on donors as well to make that happen. And so that, I was going to ask about challenges and getting this up and going. I would mm-hmm. imagine that finances is probably, you know, a challenge. Yes, it it is. Um, but... I do say that loving people doesn't cost a lot of money. So there is a lot of wiggle room that you can make happen and still have a great experience for people if you have exceptional personnel. So if we have families that are involved who really care about other families and volunteers who truly care, uh, we can do a lot. Mm-hmm. And our one of, some of our biggest expenditures in our basic programming are is food. And we've had community groups step up and serve meals which is a ton. It's 120 people that they serve sure. at a time. It's not like a wow. like a little thing. They got to really plan and, and prep, but people love to give and, and it's very fun to watch people give there. Um, additionally, financially, I think it's just wise decision making. Um, there are certain things that require money that are always going to require, you know, you have administrative costs that you you have to do. Um, but we try to just, I say we're low budget, high value. So if we can save as much money as we can, that's going to give us the best funding as we move forward to build our programming. So just like I live my life, we run the organization within the means as well. And we also have a responsibility to our donors to make good use of that money. Anybody who entrusts us with any amount of money, today's give to the max day, actually, um, which is a Minnesota giving, um, promotional day pretty much. And anytime a donor comes forward, we thank them a million and a half times. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we want them to feel like they're a part of it and their their dollars are really making an impact. So yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but yes and no. So if there's someone who connects in while they're here at the clinic Mm -hmm. and they're getting treatment and they connect with your organization and then they go home like Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And so they, they don't have a connection, a physical connection with you anymore. You know, when Ron and I volunteer at the clinic, and sometimes I will see a family ring the bell mm-hmm. and then just not leave the room. It's like, I don't know what to do now. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do your families probably experience that? And how do you help them with that? Yeah, absolutely. That is a lesser known part of uh, cancer experience that the treatment time is really a safety blanket and you feel like you're doing the thing and you're you're fighting the cancer and everything's going to be fine. Then you get done and they take away the treatment and you now know that if that didn't work, you're in a you're in a much worse spot than you were before. So those days after the finish of treatment are actually some of the scariest and and people will often um, voice those concerns in our group, which is a very active Facebook group, and we we only serve families in the Midwest at this time. So we only let people into the group that could um, meet somebody in person because there are a lot of online experiences, but we want this to be something that somebody could show up at your door and provide for you what you need at a given time. Um, If they go home, they will often come back for visits and they will plan their visits around when we're going to have events. So we have events on Sundays. It's always the third Sunday of the month. So they know that so they can plan their trips back accordingly. And then second to that is everybody's in a database. So if somebody is within a you know, a couple hours of wherever they are and they've come to a Midwest facility for treatment, we can still put them in touch with those individuals who are 
who are at home where they are. As time goes on and you build more population in those spots, it's definitely easier to um, to put them together more frequently. And that is a long-term goal is to, you know, kind of have these chapters in these different areas. Um, but for right now, it's very like a, it's like a one-off type situation. If we know somebody lives 45 minutes from somebody else, we're definitely going to put them in touch with each other so they aren't left out on their island. And we're always a phone call away. People can always come back. We can, you know, they, we, we know where everybody is. Everybody keeps tabs on where everybody else is. If they're visiting somewhere, uh, they'll go visit them. But honestly, these relationships are also very uh, awesome in, in many ways. And a lot of the families will travel very far to see each other as well. I mean, you look at them and be like, what are they doing today? Oh, just driving to Michigan for the weekend, you know? So <laughs> so it, people make it, they make it work. And once they're part of the group, they're part of the group forever. So when a, when a child goes through cancer, and I'm, I'm guessing that... I'm guessing it could be even how old are the children? I mean, like, when do you stop being a part of your community? Mm -hmm. So 21 to 22 is kind of the cutoff. Okay, so college age. Yes. So when when a when a child is done and they're ready to go back to Nebraska, wherever mm -hmm. they live, um, they can't just step back into their old school, mm -hmm. and they're not. They're not they're not the same person. Yeah. So do, do you coach them through that? How, what does a child have to go through to just get back to being normal again? Mm -hmm. Everybody has a very different experience, obviously. Some children have uh, realistically very little difficulty with that just by means of what they like to do. So if they're, if they're big sports kids and they can get back into their sports and that sort of thing, they might have some semblance of, of normalcy that will return. Oftentimes, um, the, most the most frequent diagnosis is leukemia. And for girls, treatment is two years long. And for boys, treatment is three years long. So they will be still having cancer while going to school just in the second phase of their treatment. It's not as intense. Uh, in that they don't lose their hair, they're still on chemo, and they're still sick, but they're in school. So they they kind of get that that overlap. Uh, it's it is really it is really just a very specific to each individual type okay. of situation. Um, there's no particular program that I believe would work for everybody. Every community is different. If you're in a big community versus a small community, it's going to be different. Small communities are great at supporting people and oftentimes they have less issue than those larger communities um, but it's really contingent on what that child wants their experience to be if they want to go back to school and never talk about cancer again then they may do that if they want to chat about cancer they're going to just kind of float that idea with their friends and and see where it lands if some people are supportive and some people are not you know and we're just real about it we just some people will understand some people will not understand and that's yeah. okay so when you meet at Mount Olive and you're having a get-together with 120 people there, are, are you looking at, um, are, are a lot of the kids there in, in the spectrum of stages, some recently diagnosed, some have finished treatment already? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're, we're everything. Some are like, you found out you have cancer three days ago. Welcome to our group. Um, we're sorry you have to be here, but the people are the best. And then the rest kind of fall into that phase in between in treatment. There's a big chunk that are actively in treatment because that's their whole life. And then you have individuals, probably one-third, that will come back and provide mentorship, provide support, you know, be a part of the community for that reason as well. So, yes, we're going to get everybody across the board. Sometimes we'll get kids who don't want to do anything for a long time 
and then they'll come back 10 years later, which is, which is fun to see them. Awesome. So another question I had for you too was, this is a traumatic experience mm-hmm. for a lot of people involved. Do you have connections that you can link people up to? So um, are, is mental health a serious mm-hmm. concern for a lot, Not maybe not even just the kids, but for the parents and the siblings? Yeah, absolutely. So we can only do so much. We are not medical professionals. We cannot um, be everything to individuals. And so we will do what is within our capacity to listen, to be present, to help them with anything tangible that we can help them with. Um, But after 20 years of experience, generally have a pretty good pulse on if it's something that is situational or if somebody was already predisposed to be in maybe a a difficult mental situation and now they were hit with this big stress, we have no problem saying it is the right thing for you to go take care of yourself. And parents respond to that favorably because they wanna take care of their families and you have to teach them that you need to take care of yourself to take care of your family. Um, So we do people that do a lot of different things. We know great therapists, we know great um, physicians who can get people in quickly if they need to be seen for um, a very intense mental health type situation. We are honored that people choose to call us and then we we are thankful that they listen to us when we do send them referrals to do, you know, whatever it is and whatever might be the best fit for those people. Again, very different for each individual, but um, we certainly don't step outside our lane in in that. We want people to be healthy and we want to be the support group that can say, hey, this is um, maybe a little bit farther than you should be feeling about this particular situation. And because you're with other people going through the same thing, it is much easier to have a grasp on Um, what might be a normal response or how you should be coping with something and if something gets a little out of control, which is hard to do if you're just out in normal life, you just feel like a mess all the time. Um, But there is is a level of like, this is healthy and this is normal and this is where you might need a little assistance. And Mm -hmm. we talk about it all the time. It's it's a part of life, whether you're in trauma or you're not in trauma. So so, yeah, so we're we're 100% for everybody's. So you you started this in May, is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've accomplished a lot. Yeah. I'm tired. No, I'm kidding. Um, We have coffee. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Yes, but it's not, it's not that it's the formality of it is, is, um, has been established, but the relationships are not all brand new. So, so a lot of the individuals I've known for many years, um, I'm very ingrained in the community in just a lot of different ways and am very fortunate to have access to resources and people who want to help in in a lot of um, just relationships that I've built, which has made everything much, much easier. Uh, kind of know where to get volunteers. I have access to great people like yourselves who, who want to um, give a voice to something like this and share that information. And and credit to our Rochester community who is supportive of these things that are important um, to those people who are here in Rochester at these times. So six months later, what's the greatest need on your mind for this organization? Mm-hmm. So as we grow, obviously finances, um, we're 100% donor um, based. Everybody's a volunteer. My mom does a lot of work. My dad does a lot of work. My husband does a lot of work. My basement. Good thing I bought a house because it's (laughs) very, very full of um, supplies. 
we have a wish list that we update. We'd love people to follow us on social media and stay engaged in the family's stories. If they know somebody who has cancer, we want them to refer those individuals as soon as possible. Um, it, we hear time and time again that people wish they would have connected with us sooner. You know, it's three months later and they say, oh, could have used you three months ago, but it's mm -hmm. nerve wracking and nobody wants to feel like they need to call some other person. They want to feel like they have it together, but um, that's not, we're not there to make anybody feel a particular way. We just want them to have people who understand. I think sometimes people um, that I've met even that are fighting cancer, they have this denial of this is not going to deny me and I am, mm -hmm. I am going to be, um, I, I, I'm going to be bigger and better than this mm -hmm. without the, the understanding that this is a war mm -hmm. that goes on and, and there are battles and, you know, sometimes you're bigger than those battles and sometimes you're not. And mm -hmm. I think it takes a little bit for some people time to just understand the the importance of connecting mm -hmm. with people who are going through the same thing you are yeah absolutely that is very well stated and i think the benefit of meeting people early on is that you get to see many different ways to cope you're not just out left navigating it all on your own everybody is strong everybody will overcome however it is that they will overcome but that doesn't mean that you should have to do that without um a person on your left and a person on your right. If you wanna right. wanna do it on your own, that's awesome. We'll provide your friendship. If you need someone to lean on to answer the phone in the middle of the night, we have those people too. So hmm. everyone's yeah. got a spot. Yeah. All right. We're trying to keep you top of mind there. I guess that's important too for people to know that you're out there. Yeah. So how again do they find you? Yeah, so childhoodcancercommunity.org has opportunities there for donors to get involved, also has volunteer opportunities, and also if they are if there's a family who needs to reach out, very easy to do right there through the website. Fill out a form, let us know if you're in the hospital. There's a section for that. If you just want resources, there's a section for that. Um, and I'll just tell you the inside scoop. You probably end up on the phone with one of us at the end of the day. So, sure. Yeah. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Anything else you'd like to share about your organization, how they get a hold of you? I mean, you've got a lot of networks set up right now. Mm -hmm. We just we are always welcoming new people in with new ideas who want to support in new ways because we're 100% volunteer based. We're only capable uh, to do what the people around us who want to be involved do. So if, if you're sitting there thinking, I have wanted to get involved in some organization and help in a new way, we would love to welcome you in and build a spot. All right. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being here Thank today. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, we sure yeah. appreciate you. You're so fun. All right. And you can get a hold of us at whitemanbrock.com. Info at whitemanbrock.com is our email address. Have a great day.